This is Driven by Data, the podcast. Welcome to Driven by Data, the podcast, brought to you by Orbition Group and hosted by me, Kyle Winterbottom. Orbition Group is delighted to bring this podcast series, which boasts some of the most high-profile data, analytics, and AI thought leaders from across the globe. Each episode details the journey to the top of our industry's most respected leadership figures, while bringing unique insights drawn from first-hand experience on the industry's most trending topics, told in order to share knowledge, experiences, and ideas to inspire, innovate, and give back to the global data and analytics community. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode. Welcome to Driven by Data, the podcast. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Jason Krantz, who is the CEO of Strategy Titan. So Jason, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here. You know, the pleasure is is all ours. I'm really looking forward to this. So um, where we always start, Jason, we ask our guests to give themselves a brief introduction into their background and I guess journey to date because, um, you know, I can never do that justice. So um, yeah, please, please uh, fire away. Well, yeah, I'm Jason Krantz, CEO and founder of Strategy Titan. Uh, a lot of people ask, what do you do? And the way I summarize it is, you know, we really help people and organizations make better decisions faster and with more confidence. And the next question is, okay, well, how do you do that? And really, we do this by helping them, uh, enabling them really to leverage the power of data and analytics in their decision-making process. They say decision-making process because a lot of what we are focused on is, you know, strategy and business-first mindset. Um, that can be a rarity in the data and analytics space, but by starting with kind of the end in mind, it gives us a unique angle to approach solving problems and helping businesses make better decisions. Uh, myself, I'm, a, I'm kind of a sales and finance nerd. Uh, I spent a lot of my career in the sales and finance realm, so come from definitely the business side. Uh, and over time, progressed into kind of deeper data science and analytics skills. Uh, but at this juncture in my career, I have since moved more into the leadership rank. So really... Uh, kind of played a lot of positions on the field, started in the business, uh, have always been anchored in the business, migrated eventually kind of mid-career to the more technical realm. And then now in this stage of my career, I've, I've progressed into that the leadership ranks. But really, my focus in a nutshell is, is to help companies make more revenue in EBITDA, really using the power of data analytics and insights. Yeah, nice. Perfect. So great introduction. Um, and I guess the perfect type of guest for the type of conversations that we try to have on this podcast, because we try to keep them as commercial in nature as possible um, and away from the technical, because uh, I'd certainly be lost in in that, in that realm. So um, I know you've spoken there, Jason, a little bit about what you guys do and, and how you do it. G- give the audience a bit more insight into the business. So, you know, size of the business, where you guys are working, what type of projects that you're getting involved in, type of, you know, sectors, customers, mm-hmm. et cetera, if, if you could. Yeah, absolutely. So my specialty, and this is important context for the types of customers that we go after, um, I've built out greenfield analytics capabilities, cultures, teams, all of that for multi-billion dollar organizations. Uh, as you can imagine, in companies that size, it can be quite complex. Uh, both in publicly traded and private equity firms. And so seeing a lot of different um, landscapes, if you will, and, and had to assess those landscapes and build these capabilities. But the constant theme has always been the intense focus on creating and driving capabilities that support initiatives that drive real financial results. Uh, anybody who's followed me for a while on LinkedIn knows uh, because of my finance focus, I am obsessed with what is the top and bottom line impact or, or other non-financial metrics, um, you know, customer service, customer satisfaction, all those things that go along this. And so the reason um, the reason why we focus at this on this is because for us, it's a differentiator. It's one of these things where a lot of our competition is focused on the technical nuances. Here's our AI platform, our machine learning platform. And a lot of the companies that we're going to aren't necessarily looking for technology. They're learning, looking for a turnaround. They're looking for some kind of digital transformation. They're looking to embrace a culture change. And as all of us and many, you and I have talked about, but many of your listeners can probably relate to, um, data and technology by themselves don't solve these problems. They're tools and they're extremely valuable and powerful tools to solve these problems, but they're just tools. And so really what we focus on is 
that that kind of where are we going? Start before you start the journey. Where do we want to go? And the best way to find that out is not for us to talk about how great we are, but to ask people, what are you trying to do? Where are you trying to go? What has worked? What hasn't worked? And then with that, they'll tell you, well, this is, you know, we're here. I like the, you know, the future state vision of we're here and we want to get to here. Here's the ways that we think we're going to do that. And then what we like to do is we like to say, okay, so you're looking at a revenue growth through sales enablement or sales operations or whatever it is. Uh, there's a marketing effort in there. Here's the portfolio of things you're looking to do. We can help with four of those. And here's ways that it might manifest itself. But really the goal there is to help create clarity on how data and analytics can make that journey from here to here smoother, easier, less risky. That journey is never easy. But if you can mitigate risk by creating clarity, then the leadership gets clarity. And then they can consequently pursue these initiatives with confidence and create that culture that really drives real change. Yeah. Yeah. No, I couldn't agree more. And obviously I know you and I are in you know, various LinkedIn threads together, kind of preaching about this type of stuff, but it does always fascinate me that, you know, we, we are obsessed, maybe a too strong of a word, but as an industry, I think we're getting close to obsessed with the technicalities behind how we do the do. Um, and ultimately the thing that, proves the most valuable from the experience that I've got of, you know, speaking with hundreds, if not thousands of data analytics leaderships and business leaders over the, you know, course of a year is it's that whole change piece. There's always a change element in there that kind of accompanies the strategy, right. To get them to, to where we get to, which I guess leads us nicely into the, the, the kind of the meat of the topic, Jason. So it, it fascinates me because we, irrespective of who we talk to, right? You know, whether you're talking to a, a fairly mid-level data scientist or you're talking to the CEO of a business or you're talking to the VP of, of data analytics, we all know that to generate true business value from those data analytics initiatives, we need to work backwards from the business goal mm-hmm. or the challenge, the problem that they're facing. We all know that, yet so many organizations just struggle for some reason to to kind of get grasp that and, and, sure. and, you know, therefore then putting a figure on all this stuff becomes really difficult, you know, in terms of tangible value from those initiatives. So what's your take? What, what, why, why does this happen? Yeah. Um, so I'll give my take and I will preface this by saying I'm not a psychologist. Um, <laughs> I, I, I'm not, but the one thing that I have learned, I'll give you context for this. Um, I, I'm not the most technologically sophisticated person. There's people that are vastly more sophisticated. The one thing that I have realized is that business context, business topics that are just commonplace for me or others that I work with are completely foreign entities to a vast majority of the data science community, analytics community, data community, because they don't operate in those worlds. And this is kind of one of the themes uh, I'm going to pull back for a little bit, pull it up. One of the themes I talk about a lot, and this this provides context for the broader argument underneath it, is that we we talk about it's nothing new. I've talked about lots of other people have talked about kind of the data and tech world and then the business world. There's this gap, right? And when I bring this topic up, one of the rebuttals I hear from the technical technical community is, well, the, the business world needs to be data literate. And I go, you're right, they do. But any human communication requires two parties work together to talk. So while they need data literacy, we, and I put we because I, I put myself in that camp, also need to develop business literacy. Because without that business literacy, it's very difficult to understand really what is being said without being said. We, we have it all the time where words are said, but there's other meanings layered in there that we might not even be cognizant of. This is a communication in, in human interaction fundamental. Now you realize these topics that I'm building on to set the stage for the other stuff aren't technical in nature. They're, they're, they're things that we do as humans every single day. And so the point of this, it, it, the point of that whole preamble is to contextualize why I believe that if you don't have that business literacy or awareness of what the business is trying to do or that fundamental understanding, I would argue it is near impossible to actually frame how what you're doing actually benefits them because you don't understand 
what they're trying to do. And the way that I explain this to people is it's the push versus the pull model. It's a, it's something it's, that concept is new, but within the analytics realm, it's something I've talked about for years. And I tell my team, I go, if you try a push model, meaning I've made a, a solution and I'm going to push it out to you, look how great it is. You're virtually guaranteed to fail because you're a solution looking for a problem. Instead, if we now, now if we take the we, you understand kind of the business realm a, a little bit, you can have an intelligent conversation with them. You don't have to be an expert in it. Just like somebody who's data literate doesn't have to be an expert in AI and machine learning and all that to have an, an intelligent conversation on data. You, as a data professional, don't need to be a business expert, but you got to be able to converse. And the purpose of that is to give you the ability to interview and understand what are you trying to do? It's the thing that I do with CEOs. Whenever I talk to them, I go like that, that gap. You're here, you're trying to get here. Tell me more. What are you going to do? Is it supply chain related, logistics, sales, marketing, whatever it is? And then they're going to tell me. Now what it's doing is they're telling me in their words, here's what we're going to do. So now I've got the menu. Now you know what has got the mind share with them. So there's an example, because I, I love, this is all theory. Let's bring it to real world examples. Like, so one of my favorites is, is sales. And a lot of times people will be like, hey, we want to grow revenue. Great. My first question is, how are you going to do that? Are you going to optimize your core portfolio of products and channels and regions and all of that? Or are you going to expand to new markets? Two totally different playbooks on a high level. One is kind of a, for lack of a better word, a farmer mentality. I'm just keeping what I got and I'm, I'm just making it better. The other is a hunter mentality. You got to go out and you got to get new things. Now, that sounds inconsequential. Those are two totally different sales reps. Those are two different comp plans. Those are it, it just it, two totally different worlds in general. But those provide very valuable context for how your solutions can help them hit that goal. I've lived a lot of my life on the optimization side. So now, if you're a data science or a data professional and you know that they want to grow this and a majority of the opportunity is in optimization, that gives you a very clear set of plays that you can run and solutions that you can develop that are going to directly tie into what they're trying to do. So now I go into all that preamble to bring it back to the core question of why do people struggle with this in what you've seen and I've seen is because they just simply, in one sentence, they don't have the context that's needed to position what they do in a meaningful way. So I was, I, I took the long way around on that one. <laughs> no, 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 it's perfect. And uh, I, I love examples, right? Because as you and I spoke about before, it's um, if the, if it was as easy as implementing the theory, then you know many people wouldn't need uh, need the jobs that we have, right? So um, uh, we we love examples, but. To, to go into that point around context, because I think that's really important and I see it time and time again, and I've had numerous conversations with data leadership figures, for example, but I guess the question will be, Jason, who's responsible to make sure that these data professionals within the data analytics capabilities and functions and teams that we have with inside our organizations um, who's responsible for making sure they have that context and understand that context. And I guess the reason I ask is, you know, as I said, I've had plenty of conversations where, you know, people that are doing the do now, you know, so we just use the data science example. What we, what I notice in the line of work I do. So from a, from the talent perspective, people are now looking for opportunities where they see that their work can be valued right and it's kind of understood and all of that type of stuff and that kind of often leads into a conversation where somewhere along the lines of i'm sat in a team a project lands on my desk i do the project that's in front of me i push it off you know onto the next stage and i never see or hear about that again and i've had so many conversations to say well if you had context around why that project landed on your desk, what the business mm -hmm. was trying to achieve, who's the relevant stakeholders, what are their goals, ambitions, yeah. motivations, drivers, blah, 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 blah. Do you think you could do a better job? And it's always, without a doubt, absolutely 100% yes. Yeah. So it's almost like, you know, we spoke about communication, but it seems to me yeah. there's a communication somewhere between the business and the data team and someone taking responsibility for that middle piece to, to relay the context. Mm -hmm. 
and I'm sure you're going to say, of course, you know, data professionals obviously need to upskill themselves on the business domain and stuff like that. Sure. But sure. you know, what what are you seeing in that space? Yeah. So, so uh, I will say my comments here is just my philosophy. I realize not everybody has this leadership style uh, with bigger teams is difficult. But what I say to my team is that you as an individual have as much responsibility as me for having those conversations. And what I say to them, and I encourage them, positively encourage them, go have, you don't need me to babysit you. Go have those conversations. You're curious about it. Be proactive. Go talk to them. If you get out from behind, and now this is my management style, I'm very direct. Get out from behind your keyboard and go talk to the person that you're working with. They will happily converse with you because nobody does that. That's a way to set yourself apart in a different way. I mean, think, just think about this. Put yourself in the customer's shoes. You put this request in, it goes into the ether and you're, you're like, I don't know where this project's at. I don't know what's going on. Imagine how happy you would be if somebody working on that project came to you to talk. Hey, I saw you wrote this in the spec or whatever it is. Tell me more about it. Maybe things have changed. How How is the potential use case for this evolved? Or, or what are maybe some of the things that weren't said? Because as you and I and many of the listeners can probably attest to, what always makes it on that doc, it's like a job description. What always makes it on the job description is, is, is just a the top of the iceberg for what you really do. And so what I tell my team is that because it's very easy to push off that responsibility. Now, I will acknowledge the fact that for a lot of people, that can be very uncomfortable, right? They, they don't do that. And that, that's, a, that's a, an extremely legitimate point. But guess what? The only way you get better at something is by practicing. And this is the, something I'm going to go on a tangent for a second. I'll bring it back. One of the themes I talk about endlessly with my team is that technical skills are easy to develop, meaning you can just go and hammer on a keyboard for days if you want and refine those skills. The opportunity to improve communication skills are vastly harder to develop because there's just less opportunity, specifically in this realm. We can converse amongst ourselves, but conversing with the business, those opportunities just aren't there. So this is why I say, if you want to get better in this and you want to ascend to a leadership position and or a managerial position or just build these skills, you've got to be proactive in the process because people aren't going to be coming to you. Bring it back to the original point. The question that you asked is, yes, I believe that you do have to get out there in the business and talk with people, but it, it requires you as the individual to take responsibility for that because Again, with this skill development, it transcends just your role, right? One of the themes you talked about was very job specific, but the, the answer to that question from the individuals was very career and satisfaction driven. Well, that's on you. You own that. That's not the responsibility of your employer. So if you're really serious about that, as I tell my team, go out and build those skills. I'll, I'll support you all day on that, but you got to own your de the development of these skills. I'm not here to babysit you and say, go have this meeting. Sometimes we do that. But I, I, I do that by living by example. And that with my team, when they're new on this, I'll be like, listen, I'm going to take you three and we're going to go talk to this operations person or this salesperson. And I want you to be in there and, and just listen. Not saying I'm a master of it, but to give them the encouragement to be like, I'm telling you to do this, but I'm doing it myself. And then they see that, then they get the confidence. And now you start to build that momentum. And, and my, my whole point in all of that is that the most impactful data analytics technical professionals I have ever seen in my career, and I've seen quite a few, have this ability to kind of go to that next level, right? Uh, to, to bring it back to kind of the types of analytics. It's almost like root causing or digging into the next layer of what's going on. And the thing is, is your perceived value in the business will, will exponentially grow. Because you're being proactive, you're not sitting back waiting for orders. I'm going to go out and I'm going to go out and get that. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think, and I I've been a advocate of of this, and I think there's there's two parts to this in my eyes. First of all, you know, I, I run a number of events, you know, roundtable events for data leadership figures, and if I look around those rooms very, very few have come from very heavy technical backgrounds. They've typically mm -hmm. people that have come from some kind of commercial business background who have, yep. you know, are really good at, at exactly what you've just described. Yeah. The second mm -hmm. part of that is that I've built 
as an example, entire data science teams before, throw 10 data scientists into a brand new Greenfield team. I can guarantee you that the one that goes the furthest, the quickest is not the best technically. They're the one that realized very quickly, if I get my commercial hat on and I go and speak to people, they're the ones that get the opportunities for promotion as, as kind of, you know, I'm not saying that's right or wrong, that's, that's just the way it is, you know? And, um, and I guess that brings it back to the whole, the whole value piece. Um, so how do you go about kind of creating that culture then Jason, that I guess embraces data and analytics and how it makes its decisions? Cause a lot of businesses, you know, we're all talking about this nonstop, yeah. but I'd say very few get to that point where it becomes mainstay in everything that they do. So how do they get to that point? Yeah. So, so my answer is going to be a uh, very unsexy. It's very cliche, but like at its core, this is about people, right? And this is, this, it, now there's a much deeper meaning to that, but it's about people and that we need to understand that naturally we like equilibrium. We don't like change. This is how people are myself included. You know, uh, and and I tell this to my team is saying our battle is not a battle of technology or technological capabilities. Ours is a battle of hearts and minds and getting people aligned with with what we're trying to do. And more importantly, how what we do helps them achieve their objectives. And the thing is, this gets that push and pull model by focusing on the people marketing, that sales example, sales enablement, using analytics and things like that to help people hit their goals. What we're doing is we're creating demand at the end user side. Now they're like, this is this is a, this is a very common playbook I use uh, where for sales, I'll go to the biggest naysayer and I'll be like, tell me about your sales goals. And then they'll tell me the sales goals. And then they'll, they'll walk through like, hey, how are you going to do that? Now, mind you, these people are convinced they have no need for what we do. They, I've been doing this for 30 years. I'm fine, whatever. You guys aren't going to teach me anything. It's like, no, 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 here's the thing. You're really good at what you do. And you're going to crush your goals. I have no doubt about it. The thing is, we can help you get there faster, better, with less risk. Not only that, we help you absolutely dominate your goals. And what does that mean for you? It means a bonus. It means that you get awards. It means all that stuff. Is that something that you would be interested in? Yeah, that would. Okay. Tell me about what you're going to do. Like, how are you going to get from, how are you going to get the 20% growth? Well, you know, I don't really have any place that I can go to get new accounts, you know, because I've got so much competition in these areas. Great. So it's an optimization to get back to the portfolio. All right. What if we can help you pass through? You got to, you got to put price increases this year. What through our, what if through our analytics, we can help mitigate any risk or minimize the risk of any account churn due to just bad pricing effort. You know, a lot of companies will do shotgun pricing. It's 10% increase across the board. What if we could do rifle shot pricing? So if you put a price increase out there, you know there's a very high probability that you retain that business because of the competitive price in the market for that equivalent product is where we're going to. So the substitute, you know, it's not like, oh, I can get it cheaper over here because you can't because we did the due diligence for you. Now, there's two ways that you can do that. One, you could do it yourself which I don't think you want to do, or we can help you with that. Now, now what, and the reason why I share that is because those are, that is literally the type of conversation I will sit down with and have with business people on a regular basis. Now, when we do that, now we've created demand. Now they, they we haven't even talked about a project. We are just saying, can we help you? That's, that's the fundamental question that we're getting to. And by having those conversations, now they've gotten to a place where, yeah, I'm ready for your help. What that really means is, yeah, I'm ready for change. So now we've created the pull. We've created the demand. Now we can work with them to work on projects that we know are going to deliver results. And not only that, when we deliver those projects and they do grow 10, 20, 30%, as I'll tell the guy all the time up front, I'll be like, listen, we want to watch you crush it. The credit is all yours. You're doing all the work. All we ask for is when you get there, you just, you just give us you just give us a head nod that we helped you get there, right? And then so most times people don't have a problem with it, but that gets to quantifying the financial impact where with where we're at in the in kind of uh, where we're seated at. Many data and analytics teams cannot directly drive revenue cost reduction. Whatever. Somebody else is usually responsible for implementing that. And that's part of the, the mental part of where, yes, you're not directly doing it, 
but you're directly contributing to the ability to do that. Consequently, you do actually drive it and you can claim the financial uh, benefits of that. But, you know, the, the, the point of that is that, you know, that creating that pull model is a very potent strategy. And again, it requires practice. I'm making it sound easy. Uh, trust me, I understand it is not, it's uncomfortable, but it's, it's extremely valuable. Um, but, but I think that that is, that's, it's a very potent strategy that is usable by many of us. And then the thing is, is that once you get that one win, you've got your marketing team, you've got your internal marketing team talking about how you help them hit their goals or how you're making their life easier. And then you, you, you just run with that. And that's the playbook I've essentially used the majority of my career is, is that, you know, it's focusing on that end and creating that pull. Uh, you just, you have vastly higher success rates. Mm, yeah. I've had plenty of guests on this podcast, Jason, who have talked about the need for um, data and analytics professionals in general, but especially leadership figures to, to be salespeople as well, right? And I think exactly what you described there, you know, it's no different than the person selling the product to the market. You're selling your service back to back to them, which makes sense, which I guess leads us into quite nicely the whole insight to action piece because something that I hear a lot of in the industry and data and analytics leadership figures getting really frustrated by is they do a lot of work, they bring all the insights to the business, you know, they've built all these solutions and blah, 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 blah. And then that whole insight to action piece never occurs. And this seems to happen quite regularly from conversations that I have. So why is that the case? And how do we go about changing that narrative? Sure. So uh, again, I'm going to acknowledge that um, this is more my style related. Uh, as I said, I'm extremely direct. I'm not uncomfortable at all with hard conversations. So before we start a project, I have accountability on all P all sides. So as with most teams, demand is vastly greater than the capacity. So we always have like most teams, uh, just a list of projects that you could do. So in order to properly uh, prioritize those, we go through the typical work of, okay, well, what do you need? What's the business benefit? All of that, right? One of the parts where we diverge is one, and I ask this all the time, what, what objectives at a high level does this support? The corporate objectives or the business objectives. Um, I want clarity on who is responsible for making the decision. Sure, it might be multiple people, but somebody has to make a decision. And this sounds really primitive. So many times it's just like this, it's a board that makes a decision, you know, a, 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 a somebody, but you, you got to have somebody that is accountable for taking action. And then that's the next step of like, how do we actually take action on this? Because early in my career, this was born from so many times. Somebody asks for something, we put in all this time, energy, and effort, and then it was essentially a nice to have. Oh, that's great. Thanks. Like my team just put in three weeks four weeks of that. We put off a bunch of other stuff that was a high priority. Now we're in the ringer because we got to deliver on these other things. So I finally got fed up with that process. And so now what I'm saying is, yeah, we'll do this. You need to uphold your end of the bargain too. And so what I do is this is where we go through the effort of saying, like one of the sayings I use all the time is know the game, know how, know the rules, know how the score is kept and then keep score. What that means is that before you start any work, before you start the game, you've got to have all of this stuff ironed out. And it's, this is a very important for much larger projects that are going to consume a significant amount of resources. But I would argue it's just as important with the small projects, because as you know, it's death by a thousand cuts. Your capacity will get eaten up so quickly. And you're like, we have nothing to show for all of this ad hoc stuff. And, and people are like, what are we, what are we paying all, these mon all this money for? So, um, to get back to kind of at the starting point, uh, and this gets to the theme of quantifying the financial benefits, I, I will not start a project in a majority of circumstances if we cannot quantify the financial benefits or other business benefits in real terms, not marketing math, not like, oh, maybe this or maybe that. No, it's like we need to have a rock solid uh, process to, to measure this. And maybe it's not perfect, but it's got to be directional. Um, because what it does is it creates accountability on the other side to do something with it. 
If that accountability is not there, my belief is most people will be like, eh, maybe I'll use it. Maybe I won't. And and a lot of people will disagree with that probably, but that's just the way that I approach it. Because um, after just years of, of, of wasting resources, essentially, and having it reflect on me as a leader, I got tired of it. And so I need to find a solution to this very common problem. And so that's a playbook that I use. And so uh, to, now that's before a project starts, but then I'm actually writing a book on this next topic, which is more about really understanding the decision-making culture within an organization. And you could have the best analysis in the world. And I've seen this, most of your listeners have probably seen this. Mm-hmm. You can have the best analysis in the world that is like, you know, you need to take this action. It will help you hit your goals and yet action will not get taken. And you get surprised by that. You get frustrated. You get all those nasty emotions that come with it. And you're like, you asked me to do X. I did exactly X. It's saying to do this and yet nothing happens. And this is where it just comes down to taking responsibility for it. me as a leader is I didn't understand the way that decisions were really made. And again, this gets back to people, business, understanding these things. Now I understand in big companies, this can be very difficult because it can be a complex matrix of stuff. This is really more uh, in, in big companies, it's really more your, your true executive leader. They have a responsibility because they're in those meetings or they should be in those meetings. Um, understanding the way that decisions are made and then filtering that down through the data and analytics team to, to, to communicate, listen, guys, these are, these are roadblocks that we are going to experience, much the way that we advise clients. Here's where the landmines are. Here's where the trouble is going to be. Here's how we as a group can approach this. But the idea being that if you understand the decision-making culture, you don't have to have it perfect, but if you understand it on a basic level, then you can contextualize the output of your valuable work in a way that will resonate. Pair that with the business perspective and, and you, you, you increase the chance that people that the content will resonate with people. This gets to the kind of the theme of data storytelling, but even above data storytelling is in order to tell a story effectively, you have to understand your audience. And so that's where this decision-making culture piece, I think, is is very, very important. That's why, that's why I'm writing a book about it. <laughs> yep, yep, no. And uh, I mean, I think absolutely spot on there in, in everything that, that you're saying, I guess. The, the, the process of quantifying ROI seems to be something for some reason that a lot of organizations struggle with um, as far as data analytics initiatives go. And I guess if I'm hearing what you're saying, you know, you were kind of obviously holding people to account, but I guess it seemed like you were, you were kind of describing if you can put some kind of quantifiable metric on what that piece of work is worth, or maybe even what it was going to cost to do it, that's probably going to spur people into action, right? You know, it's going to give them a a bit of, of, of kind of a a kick up the backside for want of a, a better phrase. But so why, why is it that, organizations are struggling to quantify this ROI because I think, you know, I've spoken to so many data leaders over the years, Jason, as you'd imagine, and a lot of it comes back to, well, where do you start? You know, where you, how, how are you qualifying what costs sit where and for how long, you know, for example, sure. the, the technical infrastructure to build a data warehouse will, you know, is that written off after project one or does that continue over the life cycle of all projects and, and blah, yeah. blah, blah. So I think it becomes, there's a real gray area and a lot of blurred lines with that, but yeah. talk us through how you would go about kind of tackling those, those kind of issues that we face. Yeah. So, so if you think about the mindset of the, the people traditionally responsible for this, they're very technical. They think about all these, all the details that go into it. That's that's the that's why they're successful at what they do. I take a vastly, vastly simpler approach. And and again, I, I will contextualize this by saying this isn't right for everybody, but I think the thought process can be. My argument is people will look all the time and be like, you know, um, the, the way that I frame it is not necessarily ROI per se in terms of. Here's what we invest in. We here's what we get out of it because you get you get caught up in the minutia of tracking every cost and isn't in this bucket that it doesn't in my mind it doesn't matter. Here's why. I argue that these capabilities in a lot of circumstances are generally table stakes to remain competitive in today's environment. Whether you want to spend this money or not, well, if you don't spend it, you're at a disadvantage and your your revenue is probably going to tank. Your EBIT is going to tank. 
People can disagree with that. And I can see many arguments to counter that effectively. But what my point is, is for the sake of simplicity, right? Don't think about running the marathon. Think about running mile one. So this is mile one is that don't get caught up in all of that. And then um, my take is uh, I have always been a very offensive minded revenue growth, margin expansion, all these other things that have very clear paths to some place on the PL, right? If you go to risk mitigation or compliance, I don't really know how you would effectively do that. It's not my area of expertise. And frankly, I don't want to know. It bores the death out of me. Um, so it's one of those, though, that with us being offensively minded, these things, sales, cost reduction, margin enhancement, EBITDA growth, you know, all this stuff that goes operational improvements, productivity, um, they have very clear homes on the PL. And this is where, as you go through any project, you say, okay, well, what are the potential benefits that it's going to generate, right? Using the sales example before. Pricing, pricing is one that, you know, drives revenue and EBITDA or operating profit or whatever bottom line metric you, you use. And so that's why I like to use that one is because it's a very clear path that anybody can get their head around because everybody has pricing. And so the idea is, is that now I, I'm oversimplifying that this, this, there's, there's a lot more to this. I, so I will say that I understand that this is the express version, the cliff notes version that, um, so, so we've got the cost structure worked out. You need to find where that home is at on the PL and the work that you're doing. Again, that's sort of any project you, you will do that. But then this is the most important part in my mind. You've got to get business buy-in that your contributions are going to contribute in a meaningful way to the improvement of that metric. And here's why. If you go and you're claiming that you helped drive A, B, and C, and the people that are really driving that in terms of actually taking action on it aren't in alignment with you, you will lose that battle 100% of the time. Meaning the sales rep, you remember back to my sales rep story, I, is we're going to do all this. And all I'm going to ask for is that when you get up there on that podium and you win your award or you hit your goal, you get your bonus check, give us a nod. Just let us take a little, you know, just let, let, us, let us lay claim that we, we helped you get there. And the whole purpose of that is to avoid that problem. Basically, we're getting agreement or, you know, a lot of times we'll do this with a sales leader. So you're not doing it on each individual basis, but it's like sales leader, we want to help you get there. So now, again, it's it, it, and, and here's the thing. One of your listeners, and I'm guessing even you're probably saying, well, Jason, it's not a formula. It's not like an ABC. I'm like, you're right. It's not. This is, this is as you said, this is a gray area. This is hard. This is not easy, but it is something that you can do by kind of embracing uh, in general, I think the, the, the philosophy, this is, this is what I do in every single circumstance, but it's highly dependent upon the environment, where your business is at, what it's trying to do, getting buy-in from people. As I said, that's the biggest thing because if people don't buy in, that playbook doesn't work. Um, you know, and so, so it's, it's a lot of times I've found that again, back to the people, that alignment is so important. I don't know. Does, does that help or, or, or what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, no. Uh, and I think that was, you know, kind of going to be my next question was, is this a, is this a data and analytics problem, you know, in quotation marks for, for want of a better word, or is this an organizational problem? Because I think, yeah. you know, from a business perspective, the way most business leaders, CEOs, COOs, CFOs look at this, you know, they probably want to know, right, it's going to cost us 2 million, but it's going to make us 10 million. Great. Exactly. Right. But as you yeah. said, it's not as simple as that. And there's the whole cost debacle and, you know, are you actually driving that? Is that actually your ROI to state claim to, you know, in its yeah. wholesome? No, probably yeah. not, but you've helped them get there. So, you know, I, I can understand why it's so difficult, but I guess the the complexities are obviously going to vary depending upon the sector, the size and scale of the business, the people that are in it, you know, product or service and so forth and so on. But have you noticed anything? Does it tend to be, you know, who does this sit with then, shall we say? Is it up again, as, as you mentioned before, is it on the data analytics? people and team to be kind sure. of pushing their agenda effectively. Yeah. So my take is, is it's an organizational responsibility. If you're making the investment, you, you, you need to know what you're getting out of it. Me as a leader, I, 
I want to control that narrative. I, I want to be very clear on if somebody's going to control it, I, I want to have an, a, a seat at the table on that. And the best way to, to I don't want to say control in a negative way, but I'm not going to have somebody who doesn't understand the nuances of what we're doing, tracking what we're doing. And this is why if somebody's going to own it, I want to own it because ultimately that's how I am a leader and my team is measured in its effectiveness. And this is why we go through all those efforts up front of ROI, agreement on action, because if you, you know, back to the action part, if you have all these projects, nobody takes action, right, wrong, or indifferent, leaders will look at you and be like, what, what, what's going on? How come we're not doing anything out of your group? You could, you have all these great outputs, great capabilities, but nobody's doing anything. My take is that's on me as a leader, because I did not set our team up for success by understanding and doing the things that I need to do as a leader to, to, you know, do that recon, manage expectations accordingly, do all this stuff up front. That's on me. So my philosophy, and again, uh, it's not for everybody, but I prefer to be very proactive in that process with the purpose that I'm ultimately reporting it up to the organization, but we've got everybody aligned. We've done the pre-alignment to say, yep, we're on board with that. We understand what you're doing. We understand how you're calculating it. The business is vouching that you're helping them. So by taking care of that all up front, you're not trying to figure it out later on, which is vastly harder, right? Way, way, way harder. But um, yeah, it's it's an organizational in my mind because if companies are making the investment, they they need to know what they're getting out of it. Yeah. Uh, and that makes sense. I think it's both sides of the coin, but ultimately, you know, it's the organization that pay the bill, right? So yeah, they, yeah, they, they, yeah. they need to be able to justify that. So, which again, leads nicely into, so I know that you saw something that I shared on LinkedIn recently. We had obviously Cindy Housen on the podcast a few weeks ago, and she um, firmly put me in my place about some stats that I was spouting off about and um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> basically told me that... Um, well, MIT research had suggested that, you know, most organizations struggle to quantify any tangible ROI out of their data analytics initiatives, but that only 14% of organizations are actually even trying to do that. So how, what's your take on that? Why, why how, how, why? That just it seems bonkers to me that that's even the case. Yeah, my, my take is, they just, to your point, they, they, they just don't know how, and it gets to the idea of uh, not as a knock, but as I mentioned early on, I, for me, I'm a finance guy. I look at everything, everything through a financial lens. That's naturally where I go. So everything just gets funneled through that lens. If you're not, if the organization is not tasking you with this and or they're not giving you guidance on a framework on how to do this, it's in and, and, and finance kind of isn't your natural gear. Listen, that's a very difficult ask. And I'm not saying that to knock anybody at all. Quite the contrary. I'm acknowledging that it's hard. It's why it doesn't get done a lot. But I think it's a, I think it is something that is accessible to a lot of organizations and leaders, but it involves a, a decent amount of work up front. And the thing is, it's not always going to be concrete. It's not always going to be a hundred percent, right? And I think if you let that stop you from moving down the path of getting to 80 or 90%, right? In a lot of cases, that 80 or 90% is good enough. You know, directionally, we're doing better because of this. We might not be able to quantify exactly. That's the major part that I encourage people is don't get hung up on exact numbers, right? Because you're never going to get there. You're going to be chasing a ghost. You're never going to get there. Um so I remember, and Cindy, yeah, Cindy had corrected me on some other things too, which I was like, oh, that's great. It was like, it was 85%. It was like 85% of, of projects fail. And then she corrected me and I was like, oh, thanks for that. That's actually really important context. Mm -hmm. It's not that they fail, it's that they didn't achieve the desired or originally scoped benefit, which that by itself is another, that's, that's another significant challenge of expectation management. Mm -hmm. That's, that's really hard. At yeah. the beginning of a project, people are always like, what are we going to get out of this? It's like, I don't know. I think we're going to get this. I think we're going to get market share. I think we're going to get a couple million bucks of this. But um, I think sometimes because I'm a really big believer in that, like uh, my teams have always worked side by side with FP&A, financial planning and analysis teams. The reason why 
our teams have traditionally been extensions of their capabilities, right? Finance-minded, but more importantly, central to the strategic and planning theme of an organization. And my playbook is one of the best ways to permeate a culture is to infuse it uh, or to alter a culture is to infuse analytics into an FP&A function. And it naturally extends out. Like, you know, just it grows tentacles that goes everywhere because FP&A touches most everything. Um, so that's where a lot of times we will coordinate with the FP&A team because ultimately they're the ones responsible reporting up to the CFO and then the CEO. They're the ones responsible for tracking a lot of that. So my personal preference is I won't do this on an island. I will go to the FP&A team or the CFO and work through all of this. Again, it's not related to the work we do but is absolutely critical to our sustained success and more importantly, the socialization and quantification of the benefits that we're providing the organization. If you get your CFO to buy in, you're golden. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So you spoke earlier on about the the importance of keeping score, as, as you put it. So I guess, how what does that process look like? And I appreciate that's probably a very complex question, but if you were to kind of water that down and simplify it, how do you go about keeping score? And are there things that are easier to keep score of? Sure. Does that makes sense? So, so the easiest one that I use is pricing. Um, so, you know, you, you price volume mix analysis, or, you know, you look at your current margin profile and just for simplicity's sake, we say we want to take the gross margin of a business from... X to Y, right? Well, okay, how are we going to do that? Well, there's a number of ways that you can do it. You can you can make your product mix better, so you mix up to higher margin products. You can optimize the pricing of your core portfolio, and, and a lot of times that's what we aim for. Um, and so, what we like to do is is again, this is where in conjunction, this is something where finance can independently go and validate themselves exactly the impact that we had. This is why it's my favorite because it's not us measuring it. It is and it's it's hard math straight math, um, is that we'll use pricing. And we'll say that uh, through optimizing our pricing efforts and being like a lot of times my team's controlled pricing, we we handle all pricing exception requests. And the purpose there is that we're putting an analytical process to compare the requested price to market price. And a lot of times, you know, a a customer or a a rep could sell at $3, but they wanted to sell at 2 what we're saying is, no, you, you're going to get the $3 price. Well, our process pocketed that extra. We, we tracked, here's where the quote was at. Here's what we approved it at. And, and we got the order at that price. Well, that's one example of how just our analytical process tangibly really saved us a dollar, earned us an additional dollar. Now, that's an overly simplified uh, example of, of the broader process, but we like to work for those things that have a lot less ambiguity. That's why we take the offensive approach is because they are easier to quantify. Um, but but that pricing example is just one of how it makes it easy to keep score, not only for ourselves, but others. And, and, and that, that part is important is that, you know, we can keep our own score, but that's why that pre-alignment is so important is because the team that we're playing with, keeping score with, they agreed to the rules. They agreed to the point system. They agreed to all of that. So again, that avoids conflict. Does, does that does that help answer? Yeah, it's- absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So I guess as we look to, to wrap this up then, Jason, because I'm conscious that we've spoken about quite a, quite a lot there. Um, before we let you go, if there's obviously for all the listeners, data analytics professionals, data analytics leaders, we get you know um, several business leaders and C-suite executives tuning in as, as well. But if you were to kind of quantify two or three key bullet points that you think you know data professionals should be thinking about in terms of how they demonstrate business value and mm-hmm. how that correlates to the financial impact that the work that they do has on the organization what's what's yeah. the the top the top pieces of advice you've got for them top piece of advice first one i'd say is embrace that pull model understand what they're trying to do where they're trying to go without that you're not going to be quantifying anything um the second part is as i said before get that pre-alignment understand where you're going how you're going to get there and th- that part is is all standard we do that but, but really get dialed in on those financial metrics. And that's going to take some work, right? Trust me, I understand that. The third part is embrace the accountability side of this equation. That is, that is an opportunity I think a lot of data professionals miss. 
And I'm, my belief is, again, that's my communication style. Anything to succeed requires accountability. For action to be taken requires accountability and socialized accountability. I actually make my uh, uh, my peers in this sign a contract, not legally binding, but it's like we have made, we have had this conversation and we are having this agreement. And you're we're going to do our part, and then you're going to do your part. Uh, those would be my three tips. Mm, nice. Is that almost like a a proposal of sorts that you get them yep. to? Yeah, exactly yep. that. It's one of those when when I look at them, I'll be like, hey, we did our part. Did you do your part? Yeah. <laughs> more of a more of a personal. Yeah. Uh, hey, yeah, you know. Uh, Let's take some action, right? <laughs> and maybe there's a legitimate reason they don't, but um, there's that commitment there. People break commitments, but what I found is that when you make a commitment to somebody else, at least myself and many others that I associate with, when you make a commitment to somebody else, you're much more likely to take action on it because you've given a thought through saying, can I actually do that? No ambiguity. Yep. Yeah, makes sense. Jason, it's been um, a fantastic conversation. I really um, appreciate you coming on and um, spending the time to, to speak with us. Um, if people would like to reach out. I know obviously you're hyperactive on, on LinkedIn like myself, but if they're keen to reach out and, you know, chat through anything that you've spoken about today or interested in working with you guys, are, are you, what's the best way for them to reach you? Uh, strategytitan.com. Uh, you can give me a jkrantz at strategytitan.com or as you mentioned, LinkedIn. Uh, I am on LinkedIn quite a bit, but um, you know, we have these types of conversations. I've been doing it for years. And, uh, and what I always encourage people, if you want to talk through these things, uh, give me a call. No, as you know, I give a lot of my expertise away for free on LinkedIn. Um, so I'm happy to have these conversations with no obligation or anything like that. Just talk shop and hear about what you're doing. But yeah, thank you very much for the uh, opportunity to come on. It's always great to talk with people that, that do what you do and, and are seeing, seeing things in a different lens. And I appreciate it. No problem at all. Well, thank you very much, Jason, for um, for spending your time and yeah, look forward to speaking to you again soon. Likewise. All right, cheers. Bye-bye. That's it for this episode of Driven by Data, the podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. I'll be back next week speaking with another thought leader from the world of data and analytics. Until then, please follow Orbition Group on social media if you've not already done so, where you'll be able to subscribe and therefore be made aware of the podcasts as they arrive. And please share like and leave reviews so that more people from our industry get to hear and benefit from these too. If you've got any questions or you want to suggest ideas for topics or potential guests, then please feel free to reach out to me. Thanks for listening and I'll be back next week. Yeah.